Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. So yesterday, I was in Cooper Landing for a wedding for Sarah Bender, our former youth director who served us since last January. Um, she got married to her beloved Joshua, and um, I was in Cooper Landing helping her to coordinate her ceremony. And um, it was supposed to be outside on the beaches of Kenai Lake, but it was about 20 mile an hour winds. <laughs> so we made a last minute, well not last minute, a couple hour before decision to have the wedding inside and um, move things around. But I got to meet um, Philip, who was the officiant, that, the pastor that, um, that hosted the service and um, led them in their vows. And he's a part of the church ministry, True North, where, uh, where Joshua serves as youth pastor, and now Sarah, alongside him. And uh, the first words out of his mouth, after who gives this woman to be married to this man, and we were all sat down, he started his ceremony like this. One of the most beautiful expressions of love and personal commitment ever penned was first spoken by Ruth when she said, don't urge me to leave you. Or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So you may have heard these verses before at weddings. And actually, Curtis and I and our exchange of rings. Oh, there's a dog on the stage. This is a first for me. I'll just say that. And I'm not sure where he came from, but okay. There he goes. Um, yes, back to my, what I was saying. I'm just, okay, bring it back in. Okay. So, um, yes, we, we said these verses as well when we exchanged rings. And, and maybe you didn't realize that this scripture is actually from the book of Ruth, from the Bible. And that may be actually all you even know about the book of Ruth is these verses that you hear often at weddings. But today, I'm going to be sharing an introductory sermon on the book of Ruth. Um, this is the next book of the Bible that we're going to be studying um, over the next few weeks. And um, I'm going to be doing, like I said, a, a little bit of an overview, some background information to help set the stage for this study. Now, next week, we have a treat because Jean Mute, Tom's mom, who's actually here with us this morning, is going to be sharing next week on Mother's Day. But then Pastor Chris, in two weeks, will dive into this book and we'll go deeper into chapter one. So we are going to start with chapter one. One thing that's interesting is that those words that were quoted in the wedding and in my wedding weren't really quoted in a wedding. Um, and they weren't even between male and female, man and woman who were in love. No, they were actually between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And yet, these words truly are an example of deep, deep love. And we're going to get to that. And Chris is going to get to that more later on. 
So um, I've entitled my sermon here, Ruth, the story of return, robust love, and redemption. Story of return, robust love, and redemption. So we're going to be looking at some themes and, like I said, some background information. Today we're only going to just look at the first seven verses of Ruth as, as, a, as a backdrop for this. And so um, let's, uh, you can read along, um, as I, Sally, as I read aloud. And it came to pass in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malan and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them, wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. And Malan and Kilian died, both of them. And the woman was left with her two children and was, and was left of her two children and of her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how the Jehovah, Yahweh, had visited his people in giving them bread. And she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. The very first part of this passage says, in the time of the judges. In the time of the judges. That little tiny phrase sets us, gives us a place in time when this happened. After Joshua had led the Israelites into the land of Canaan, the promised land, to settle there by tribes in different locations, the Israelite people had an opportunity to live out the covenant law that had been given unto them by Moses. They were told to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and to be a blessing to the nations, to remember the Lord and to not forget him and to live according to his ways that they may live, be blessed, and be a blessing. And yet, when we look through the book of Judges that recounts this time of about 410 years, we see that the Israelite people did not do that. In fact, there's a cycle that's repeated through the book of Judges over and over and over again, where the people of God forget the Lord. They, they fall into idolatry and all kinds of sin. And as a result, the Lord would want to draw them back to himself. And he would do this by allowing them often to be conquered by a foreign people. And then the people would cry out for mercy, beg for forgiveness, and ask them to be restored to favor. And so then in doing that, he would call a judge, a leader from among the people, both men and women, to come forth and to utilize their gifts and to organize them and to call them back to the Lord. And so we see this cycle. There's one verse that's repeated a few different times to give us an idea though about what this 410 years was like. And it's uh, 
In Judges 17, 6 and a few other places, it says, In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we don't see them looking back to the teachings of Yahweh, looking back to the covenant, looking to the Ten Commandments, looking to the teachings of Moses that called them to remember. These were dark days in the history of Israel, and they were full of suffering that was brought about by the Israelites' apostasy and their immorality. Part of the judgments that God brought upon his sinful people included famine and war. And so the book of Ruth opens with a report of a famine in which Naomi and her family are driven out of Bethlehem. They choose to leave Bethlehem, which by the way, Bethlehem, the meaning of Bethlehem is house of bread. But at this time, there's no bread to be found in the land. The famine was severe enough that they would choose to make the seven to 10 day journey through desert spaces to Moab, where they heard there was still food. So as we look at the story of Ruth, we can identify this cycle um, of, of, of the judges, where it's at in the cycle. And um, it's an interlude as a part of the cyclical pattern. But the story that we'll read and you'll see in the coming weeks is a ray of light showing the power of love between God and his faithful people. Judges was a big picture and the book of Judges is full of big stories of God's movement as he called people in ways that he inter, intervened in very direct and big ways. But the book of Ruth, God, Yahweh, is only mentioned twice directly. And yet we see his hand, his providence, evident as the story reveals that he is working in suffering behind the scenes to show his favor to anyone, to those who would turn to him. These cycles of separation from the Lord would range anywhere from eight years to the last one when they were enslaved to the Philistines for 40 years. So the cycle, some were long and some were shorter, um, but they were difficult. So I want to just explore three themes that we're going to see in the coming weeks. The first is return. Return. So this morning I asked you to talk about a place where you've been that you would, you would like to return to and a place that you've been that you have no desire to return to. Well, Naomi in this story is going to return to Bethlehem. As we've read in the first few verses, she um, has lost her husband and she's lost her sons and is left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And she's heard that the cycle of judgment has um, ended in Bethlehem and now the famine is done. And so she decides that it's time for her to go back because there's nothing left for her in Moab. So return. She leaves, we'll find out later. She tells, wants to change her name because she's so bitter. She's not expecting um, a, the, what the Lord is going to do, this overwhelming um, return of favor to fullness. 
She just thinks she's going to survive. And she goes bitter. But she returns. She's returning. And as Jane so eloquently and um, heartfully reminded us this morning, the Lord will provide. And he does provide. And returns Naomi and her family into God's goodness. Return. Now, it was no small thing that they were returning from Moab. You may remember the story of the first story that we have of Moab. Moab was the name of the son of Lot, who was conceived when his daughter um, took advantage of her father when she was drunk. She and her sister, when they were out in the desert with Lot after um, Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed, were afraid that they would not ever have sons. And so they, in his Lot's drunkenness, they seduced their father and both became pregnant with sons. This is shameful today, and it was also shameful then. And so the story of Moab and the Moabite people had, um, uh, it carried with it um, a shame. And so the, the readers of this, the Hebrew readers, Jewish readers of this, in their day, when they heard Moab, Ruth, a Moabite, would automatically have um, bias against her for that. But not just that. Um, Israel regarded Moab as an inferior people because of this. But also the law, because of the history of Amnon, the Ammonite people and the Moabite people, and the way they um, were hostile towards Israel, when they were in the desert, um, in the days of Mo Moses, um, they were not allowed to join the assembly of the Lord in worship, um, should they want to, down to the 10th generation. Moab oppressed some of the Israelite tribes for 18 years in the beginning of the cycle of Judges. So not only was there um, uh, a bias against them, because of the shame in there and where the country of Moab began, there was anger and hostility because they had mistreated the Israelite people for most of their history and had ruled over them a few hundred years before. At this time, um, it seems that there's peaceful relations between Moab and Israel. They're not at odds with each other politically, but the history is still there. And so the fact that Elimelech, would choose as a, as a Hebrew man to take his family to Moab meant that things were desperate. They were desperate. And whether or not he had chosen to not trust God and leave because of that, we, the text doesn't tell us that. But we know that where they went was a place of idolatry. In fact, the Moabite people are called the people of Shamash, who was the, one of their gods they worshiped. Um, when you see Moab, that God's name is often associated with them. So, to return, to return to Bethlehem, the house of bread, was the first step for Naomi and her family. The book is really written from Naomi's perspective, though it's entitled with the name of Ruth. So as we look at another theme, um, we talked about return. 
The second theme that I want to talk about is robust love. All right, I have a next screen. Okay. Many of you will not recognize this word, but some of you in the audience do. And so I'm going to ask if you recognize this word and could tell me one English word that is the same as synonym. Raise your hand. All right. Okay, that's more than one word, Anna. It's okay. That's three words. Genera okay, say it again. Yeah. I don't say it very well. Yes, that's it. It's very hard to say. It's hard to roll out the R's. Now, this word has was on the conference board over there at the conference office for quite a while. And it was a word that was introduced to us um, when my children were much younger and Curtis was in McCoryak. Um, yes. And the circumstance around this was that his, he had been on about a six-day trip and was supposed to come home. I was home with the three kids, and the flight, the runway, either the flight wasn't going to land or the runway was closed, one of the two. So Curtis calls me and says, I'm not going to make it home. And immediately, I started crying. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not a real easy crier, but it was the end of the long week, and I was so ready for him to come home, and I start crying. Well, he feels awful, but there's nothing he can do about it. And I'm not even sure, maybe it was Sandra. I don't know if you were there when this happened. It might have been you. But wherever Curtis was staying at the time, they could tell he was, he was feeling bad. And he was like, they were like, what's wrong? Well, I told Christy, and she started crying because <laughs> I wasn't going to make it home. And whoever it was said, Curtis, general talk. Okay? I can't say it right. General talk. And he says, what does that mean? Well, it's like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. But the reality is there's not just a word in English that translates. And I see Jean nodding her head. There's not an English word that captures all of what this is in Chupin. Okay. So, but it's the idea. It's, it's going to be okay. Relax. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And so, um, now, Curtis didn't call me and say, I want to teach you a word, Christy. It's going to be okay, right? But he did teach it to me later when he came home. And by the time he got home, things had settled and I was much better. But we put it on the conference office uh, whiteboard for a while because over there, things happen. And there's stresses in the churches and there's stresses with pastors. And there's things that we don't always know what to do, how to respond. And, and it can be easy to get anxious quickly. But that word reminds us. It's going to be okay. Now, the reason why do I share this word? Because there's not a translation for this word in, into English. In the same way, there is not a translation in English for the word chesed in Hebrew. Chesed. Now, I'm also not a Hebrew speaker, but I'm, I know it's got that chesed, okay? And that word chesed is translated, it's, it's very, very common through the Old Testament in Hebrew, and it's often translated loving kindness. Like they put two words together, two English words together to try to capture it. But it's this combination of kindness and loyalty and covenant and commitment 
and mercy and goodness. It's this really robust, full word that we don't have a word in English for. But anytime you study and you look through commentaries on the book of Ruth, scholars talk about this word, chesed, that Ruth is a picture of chesed. And it's not just of the Lord's love. Yes, the Lord is the hero of this love story. And we see his chesed to his people, especially to Naomi and to Ruth and to the family. But chesed is also experienced between people. And there's, there's passages all through scripture about this. Some of the implications of chesed also are that it's in relationship with at least two parties. That someone is in desperate need and the second per is, is in need and the second person possesses the power and the resources to make a difference. And so there's a relationship, there's a need that then is met. And chesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by a bone deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. They have the freedom to act or to walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation. Yet they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. It's actually the kind of love that we do find most fully expressed in Jesus. In a nutshell, said is the gospel lived out. And we'll see that. We'll see that through this story. Now, another really key part of this is the reality of suffering and the theme of suffering. The book of Ruth, um, well, actually, Naomi's, Naomi is considered among scholars a female version of Job. We're common. We're, we're, we're well aware of the story of Job and the incredible suffering that he went through, and it's detailed in chapters and chapters. We just see a few verses here that express the suffering that Naomi especially was in and Ruth as well. Um, but there was deep suffering. And so this question throughout the book, where is Hesed from the Lord in deep times of suffering? See, the Ruth had caved in on Naomi. She was facing a whole different layer of adversity than Job especially, specifically because she was a woman in a culture that deferred to men. Death had stripped her down until she stood nakedly before God without the usual props that a woman could count on at the time to justify her significance. A husband and the hope for children and her two daughters-in-law had lived there for 10 years without conceiving, so they were barren as far as she knew. And this is where Naomi's story enlarges to encompass every woman who ends up or fears ending up alone, regardless of the reason. See, Naomi's culture expected that a woman would secure her place in society through marriage and motherhood. Although women today have more options, that expectation remains alive and well in the present, both in our culture and inside of us. The destruction of Naomi's wife and mother credentials 
sounds the death knell for her. Bereft, she floats on her own, disconnected from everything that gives her life meaning. Minus the three men who are listed in the beginning of this passage, who had given her the reason to be a part of the story, Naomi's words say it all. I am empty in Ruth 1.21. She had been brimming with life and dreams for the future. She's drained of hope and meaning. Her losses assault her value as a human being, her dignity as a child of God, her purpose of life. The culture will discard her, and she believes that God has too. In her nakedness, Naomi embodies an issue that really concerns every human being, female or male. And by nakedness, I mean the vulnerability that she finds herself in. We often hide behind our marriages, our families, our careers, our bank accounts. Whatever it is, though, it doesn't change the fact that underneath we're naked too. And what happens to me? What, what happens when, in those places of suffering when we've lost all the things or we're losing things that have propped us up? Who are we when there's nothing left but me? God, God's answer for Naomi covers, us, the re- covers the rest of us as well. And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. Now, the last theme is redemption. Redemption. And in the redemption that God does not show favoritism. Even though Ruth, who was the Moabitess, and we see, any, every time we see her name, it says the Moabitess right after. Like we got it the first time, but no, it keeps saying it over and over again because of the stigma that carried. Um, the Lord is not slow to receive her when she turns and says, I want your God, not just a little, not L, the word E-L, the word, just a generic God. She says, she calls God by name. I want Yahweh to be my God. And as she turns to him, toward him, in an act of faith, we see the Lord respond in amazing ways. You see God's call, his desire for all people to be in relationship with him has been there since the beginning in the garden. And yes, the Hebrew people were chosen to be the family that God would show himself through and communicate to the rest of us through. But it was never intention, never his intention that they would be the solo ones. And so we see in this story, not only the redemption of the life of Naomi, we see God fulfilling his plan. Both Matthew and Luke tell us and list Ruth's name specifically because as she returns and enters into Israel, she will marry and she will be the great-grandmother of King David. God includes this Moabite woman into the lineage. And not only that, she does have him marry Boaz, who will be introduced to in a few weeks, the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz's mother, who was Boaz's mother? The Canaanite Rahab that was rescued from Jericho. So in the lineage, we have a Moabitess and a half Canaanite in the lineage of King David, who we know is the the ancestor, the forefather in the lineage of Christ. See, God's redemptive story, his chesed, is for all. And that is another element of the goodness of this story. So there's lots of details that have yet to be filled in, and they will be in the coming weeks. 
But I would encourage you, if you've never read the book of Ruth yourself, to do that. Our children this morning in Children's Church are starting the book of Ruth as well. And in the newsletter, I've included a link to some family activities and devotions around the book of Ruth. It's four chapters long. It's not a long read, but it's an incredibly beautiful unfolding of these elements um, with God, like I said, as the hero of this love story. So I ask you this morning, is God calling you to return? Have you been in your own personal Moab? Whether you ended up there because of circumstances out of your control or Maybe you wandered there on purpose, and yet you sense the Lord calling you to return. The story of Ruth is for you. Are you suffering, wondering if there's any hope for any more goodness in your future? The story of Ruth is for you. Are you hungering to experience God's loving kindness, his faithfulness, merciful love, chesed, in the everyday places of your life, the story of Ruth is for you. Are you looking for an example of how you can live out God's chesed in the world for his glory? The story of Ruth is for you. Have you wondered if you're too far away for God to receive you? That your past is too shameful, your lineage too tarnished, your choices have been too bad? him to take you back. There's good news. The story of Ruth is for you. As Naomi's life was equated as a female Job, one writer has written um, a commentary that I've drawn heavily from that Pastor Chris gave me called The Gospel of Ruth. See, there is good news. There is good news about life, about God, about love, about hope. There's good news for women in the book of Ruth. And men, of course. There is good news for all who would return, who would call on the name of the Lord. There is good news for us in Ruth. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would call us. You would open our eyes and our hearts to who you are, to your love. Lord, we, we know there are parched places in our heart. There are places where we too feel bitter, that we are empty. And Lord, we need you to show us anew your love, where your love fits in the midst of the suffering we're in or the things we've been through or in the foreign land that we are traveling in. God, I pray that you would hearken us to your gentle love, to your call to return. And Lord, that we would be inspired to know that in the everyday normal places of our life, God, that we too can be examples, givers of loving kindness to those around us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, inspire us, correct us, lead us to deeper places with you in coming, the coming weeks as we look at the book of Ruth. In Jesus' name, amen.